May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may have noticed a metaphor emerging from both of our readings this morning. Just to check you were listening, can anyone tell me what it was? The vineyard, thank you, yes, well done. (laughs) It was the vineyard. We heard from Isaiah a love song about an unfruitful vineyard, a vineyard that was loved and cared for, but instead of yielding flavoursome grapes, yielded wild, bitter grapes. And so the owner of the vineyard laments that there is nothing more to be done for his vineyard. So he removes the walls and the hedge protecting it and allows it to be trampled and devoured and become overgrown. And then in concluding, the writer affirms that the vineyard of God was the house of Israel, who instead of producing the fruit of justice and righteousness, produced tears and bloodshed. When Jesus spoke the parable in today's gospel, he makes a very clear link to this passage in Isaiah. He was clearly talking about the same God, the same vineyard. And interestingly, the parable that I read this morning is one of only three that appears in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It must be important. And I think it's important because really it tells the gospel. It reminds us of the good news that we proclaim, that of Jesus Christ, who was sent in love, was rejected and killed, and yet became the foundation stone of the kingdom of God. So let's unpack that a bit more this morning. Whilst Jesus makes a clear connection between the parable he tells and the story in Isaiah, the problem in his parable is not bitter fruit, not the harvest of bloodshed and tears, but rather it is the tenants, those who are meant to be caring for the vineyard. Tenants in the parable are shockingly bad. It would have been quite normal for a wealthy landowner to hire tenants to care for his vineyard while he disappears home, perhaps in another country, and he may well leave them for several years before returning to collect his harvest. But when this landowner sends representatives to collect his harvest, they are treated badly, beaten, killed, And the same thing keeps happening. You would think that the landowner might at this point send some reinforcements, perhaps a bit of muscle, to ensure that the tenants pay up. And yet we see him acting almost with unbelievable faith. Surely they will respect my son. But they don't. Perhaps the tenants don't really believe that the landowner himself will ever return. Perhaps they consider him weak or powerless. The passage suggests they think they might get the inheritance, which seems absurd. Whatever the reason, they kill the son. And then Jesus asks his listeners, what do you think the landowner will do now? Interestingly, Jesus lets them answer the question and doesn't say if they are correct or not that he will put those miserable miserable wretches to death 
and lease the vineyard to other tenants. But who are these tenants who come across so badly? Well, they are in fact the Jewish religious leaders who, according to Jesus, have failed so badly at caring for Israel, God's people, at supporting and guiding them in producing good fruit, that they have killed the prophets who God sent to speak wisdom to them, and finally will kill God's own son. Jesus told this parable just a few days before his death. Like the tenants, the religious leaders have done this perhaps in ignorance, perhaps in their blindness, perhaps in arrogance, due to a sense of entitlement. They've forgotten who the land really belongs to. They suspect the landowner will never return. But we must be cautious here, reading this parable 2,000 years later, not to lump this onto the Jews. It is the religious leaders who are criticised here, not the Jewish people. And indeed, we in the church today have dangers to be aware of as we hear this parable in our own time and context. This sense of complacency, entitlement and arrogance are dangers for us today, just as they were for the religious leaders in Jesus' own time. And we'll return to that shortly. But how does Jesus conclude his parable? Well, it's with a bizarre and little-known quote from Psalm 118, which then became one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. The son in the parable came to reclaim what was rightly the Lord's, and yet he was rejected, thrown out and violently killed. But he has become the cornerstone, (coughs) the foundation of all that is to come, the kingdom of God. Surely this is the gospel of Jesus. He came to show us God's way, and yet was rejected and killed. But that was not the end of the story, for he has become the foundation for God's working in the world and bringing about of justice and righteousness and peace. Someone asked me the other day, not for the first time, about our commitment to being an inclusive church. And pointedly, just what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships? Well, I spoke to them about passages in the Bible which condemn such relationships and the context of those, and of other passages which might be understood to be more accepting. But most importantly, I explained, as Christians, we look to Jesus as our moral compass, our guidance. And Jesus demonstrated during his time on earth, God who is loving and welcoming and inclusive, who reaches out to those on the margins and turns no one away. This is the cornerstone on which our church is founded. This is our gospel. Today's parable is an important reminder to us of the basis on which the church is built, and that is of the Jewish faith, God's work among the Jewish people his faithfulness and theirs, 
And yet the foolishness and arrogance of those who God appointed as tenants, those he put in charge, who instead of helping the people to find God, end up pointing the people to themselves. They grew apathetic and rebellious, and that resulted in the end of their rejection of God himself. This was a criticism of their religious leaders, but we're not off the hook. Where do we put ourselves in this parable, I wonder? Do we see ourselves simply as swooping in as the new tenants who will take better care of the harvest? Well, let's not be too quick to deal out judgment on others. In fact, we too need to be wary. First of all, of our sense of entitlement. After many years in charge of the vineyards, the tenants forgot that it was not theirs. The church is in danger of feeling like it is entitled, of claiming exclusivity over the gospel. In fact, Jesus was very keen to reach outside of established religion, outside of those in the synagogues and the temple, to the average person, to the marginalised and the outcast. We too need to be careful that we are not keeping this message tightly to our chest, claiming it only for ourselves or for those who we see as worthy. As we've been reminded throughout the season of creation, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is not our vineyard. It all belongs to God. So too there is a danger of thinking, well, the landowner's not coming back any time soon, so we can do what we want. There is a temptation here to get complacent, apathetic, even disbelieving in God's promises as we ponder if really he will ever return. We are promised in the Bible that there is hope because Jesus will return, and he will return as judge. We should live our lives with that awareness, not fearful or fatalistic, but conscience, conscious of God's authority and confident of his promises. So how might I conclude this morning? Well, I think it has to be with the gospel, that good news, that Jesus came to earth, was rejected and killed, and yet has become the foundation stone on which God's kingdom is built. And so this Jesus who we worship is not dead and buried, but very much alive and working in the world and in our lives, bringing about his kingdom of love and peace and justice. And the good news? that we are invited to join him. Amen.